Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, see the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Our guest today is Norm Reed. Norm is the pastor at the Christian Family Centre, which is next door to Risdon Prison in Hobart. Welcome, Norm. Thank you, Celia. Before we get into the work that you're doing, can I take you right back to little Norm? Sure. Where did you grow up? In Wolverhampton, um, England. And I, I left there. I was actually one of the original boat people. I was about two and a half years of age when I left with mum and dad, and we came out as 10-pound poms to Australia. Where did you settle? In Sydney at uh, the East Hills Hostel, which is down the road from Heathcote, in, um, not too far from Sydney. We moved there ultimately. Um, my father worked at Lucas Heights. Um, and I joined the Navy when I was 15, 15 and a half, and ended up going to Western Australia at HMAS Lewin. So I was uh, what they call a junior recruit. I think I finished up on one of the best scholarships in Australia. I um, did my matriculation while I was in the Navy, so I um, did that from HMAS Lewin, and then I went to the Naval College at Jarvis Bay as a Naval Officer. What was it like being a, a young man, a, you know, a boy in the Navy? Fun. Was it? <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, thoroughly enjoyed it. I suppose I wanted to do something different. I... I, I Dad was um, in the Royal Navy during the war, and often I'd hear stories about the war and those sort of things. And we, you know, Dad always watched the um, black and white war, mo- war movies that you remember seeing of the um, of the Navy. And so I think it was something that was deep inside of me. I thought of doing, and so as a fifteen year old, fifteen and a half year old, um, started. I just uh, I just enjoyed doing it. It was a great life. Got to um, meet lots of friends, mm. have great relationships. Mm. So yeah, it was very good. So you ended up at Jervis Bay. Uh, eventually, yes, yes. Lovely place. Two lovely beaches. Used to, and interestingly enough, I got my first um, posting. I became a supply officer eventually, and got my first posting back to the Naval College, where I spent about uh, three and a half years as a captain secretary. And so I lived in this most idyllic position. I used to go for runs up and down the beach, and ultimately met my wife, who um, was the nursing sister at the um, at the um, Naval College as well. So it's an interesting lead up to becoming a pastor. What happened in between? I suppose I did a bit of exchange service in New Zealand and um, very short time. And whilst I was there, I was actually um, out for a, a, a meal with a young girl. And she just made an interesting comment as we we're having a meal. And she said to, to me, Norm, are you a Christian? And I said, no. And I said, are you a Christian? And she said, no. We kept on eating. I said, well, why did you ask me the question? And she said, you're a very sincere sort of person. I thought you may have been. And so the conversation changed. We talked a bit more. And then she said, Norm, why haven't you become a Christian? Which is a most unusual conversation. And I said, well, I've never wanted to make the commitment. Was there religion in your family at all? Well, this is what this the, um, the answer really was, because I've never wanted to make the commitment to be what I thought was a Christian. I said, because my sister's a Christian. And I've seen the example of her life. And I just don't think I could pay that cost for being that and doing the sorts of things I should do. And so ultimately, that led to a chain of circumstances. And probably within about two weeks' time, I was, uh, I was in Canberra. And I was collecting money for the Salvation Army door locking appeal and I walked into a house and um, I, I went through to collect money from the, the room inside and one of the guys said to me, are you born again? And I said to him, no. This is getting spooky. It, it, it really is. It really is. And I said, no. And he said, do you want to be? And I said, I suppose so. 
And uh, at the end of that, he met me at the door and basically my life changed from there. So I went from being um, a, a career naval officer, just felt that this had no passion. I thought, even if I stay in the Navy for a long time, probably the best thing that could happen is maybe I'd be an admiral. They might name a ship after me. I mean, it would probably sink. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, well, I just felt that life had more meaning than that. And so following very shortly after that, I became a missionary in Papua New Guinea for 10 years. What was that like? Fantastic. I mean, really, it was some of the best years of my life. It was um, like most of us, we live in a Western society. But to live in Papua New Guinea and be ingrained within the culture and to go and spend time in villages and your whole values change. I mean, how, how you relate to elderly people, how you relate to children. How, I mean, so we put so much value on things. And to live in a village environment and you see happiness and what happiness is really like. And we have so much which we think will make us happy, and it never really does. So that was the a really good grounding for you, wasn't very, it? For, very much so. Do you wonder how people make it as as religious people without that kind of experience, without that sort of grounding? I know. I, th- I think most religious experiences that people have, it also has a challenge to the values, and I think they outwork that in different ways. Um, so for me, particularly, it was a quite an extreme change going as a missionary to Papua New Guinea. But uh, I think other people do the same thing through their own experiences that way. Mm. Did you have children there? Um, we went to New Guinea with our first child, our son, and then we had two other children while we were there. And they grew up, so we spent um, you know, about nine years, the kids grew up there. Have they got a connection to the country now? Not so much to New Guinea, but they've, um, someone said that missionaries' children always become, um, they travel a lot. And so all of our kids, we have one lives in Switzerland, one lives in England, um, the other one lives in Sydney, so they're all kind of scattered around the place. So from New Guinea, you came back to Australia? Yes. And settled where? In Adelaide, and I was involved in quite a large church as what they were called the executive pastor. So I was practically involved in church stuff, but also very much in the administration, which I fitted quite well in that role, um, having been a naval officer, supply officer, captain secretary, those sort of things. And it was during that time that um, there was a little church in Hobart, and it was going through quite a few um, difficulties. At, um, it was part of our denomination. And the church got to a few, a few problems, and they'd gone without a leader for a while. And we heard about it, and through one chain of circumstances or another, they said to, um, to, to our church in, in Adelaide, would you be wanting to help us? And so they dwindled down to about 20 or so people. Um, but it was a large church in the sense that it had a large property, 64 acres of land. Mm. But it was lo- located right next to the prison in Tasmania, so in Risdon Vale. But it's, it's virtually, I think it's probably the, the closest church that I've ever seen next to a prison. You can open the door and spit over the fence. Was that part of the reason that the population, the church-going population had dropped? Not really. It's not far from the centre of city. I, I think, you know, the church, ch- church, all church, all organisations go through these issues and churches aren't mm. exempt. Mm. So I think there are challenges in different ways and people had left and it was an aged population. And so um, basically um, in my role, um, we took some of our board members across to, the, um, to, to Hobart to have a look and we said, well, we think we could help out. And I kind of put my hand up and said, I think I'd help out. So I ended up commuting for 12 months, we were going to look for a leader. So I commute from Adelaide, the direct flights in those days. For how long? How many days would you stay in Hobart? I'd fly over on the Saturday. Mm. I'd minister on the Sunday, stay the week, do the next Sunday, then fly back to Adelaide. So I'd do one, one week, okay. but two weekends a month. Mm-hmm. And then we supplemented the other sessions, uh, other weeks with other people. So uh, I did that for 12 months and we were looking for someone. At the end of 12 months, I was um, one of those beautiful days that you have in Tassie. And it really, they really are nice days. Mm-hmm. I was driving across the bridge. And I looked at it and I said, this is so nice. I think I could live here. And something changed in me from never wanting to live in Tasmania to actually deciding this is the place for me. And that was about 10 years ago. So how did you go about the challenge of restoring that church. congregation? I mean, here I was in a church 
that was right next to the prison. So how did I turn the church around? A lot of it related to we were there for a reason. The reason that we're actually so close to the prison, I believe, was not just because we're a church in the community. We actually, that we had a responsibility. If we couldn't care for our nearest neighbours, because again, that's part of Jesus' teaching, how could we care for the others? So I, so I suppose it became really an endeavour then to how do I get into the prison? And so over a period of about three years, I tried to break into prison. How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> break into prison. <laughs> but I wanted to break in in such a way that I could actually get out again at the end of the day. So, so it was just building relationships and starting to find opportunities. And so bit by bit, the doors opened and, um, and we built a great relation with the prison and we've started to engage around um, different things we can do. I suppose one of the things too, how did that all unfold? Mm. Well, again, we've got 64 acres of land and I, and I suppose I looked at, we didn't have a lot of money, we had debt. We didn't have a big congregation. So money was never, a, a, we didn't have a lot of it. And I looked at what I did, I had land. And I, I could see there was land round about and, um, and, I, and, I, and I saw the prison and I said, well, maybe I could offer to the prison some of our land. We could do something with it. And I, I remember meeting with a guy and saying, well, do you want to build some places here for prisoners getting out? And do you need more land? And they said no. And, um, and then I um, decided, well, there used to be a garden on our property ages and ages ago. And we, we had a, a large portion of land that we, I offered to the prison, would you like to use our land for some garden? Mm. They said yes. And so we ended up developing this garden complex. And um, the, the prisoners would come out and they'd work the garden. And actually, that's how we first engaged with Igniting Change. I was going to ask you that. So part of that process was we, we Stephanie was doing a visit because somehow she'd connected with the prison and wanted to engage. She came across to the prison and was meeting with them and, uh, and they'd started a garden inside and they talked about the garden that we did. And so she came up onto our property and said, Norm, can we have a bit of a chat? And I talked about the garden and in the process of doing that, she said to me, um, what else would you like to do? Are there, are there other things that you'd like to engage in? And I said, well... Funny you should ask that. I mean, there's a few things. We, we had also, um, one of the programs we had run was a, a thing called Kids Day. And it used to operate for quite a few years in the prison, then stopped. And it was focused around the dads, and it was called Dad's Day, where dads could have some time with the children. And we were asked by the, invited by the prison to run a program to help the children connect with their parents in the prison. And, mm. and so we, um, we started to do that. And we started back about 2012, so it's been going now for quite a few years. And it's where children will come in and spend two hours with their parents. And they all do you know, face painting and all sorts of different activities. And um, we, we would theme them. So one day we themed it as um, MasterChef. <laughs> and we were able to get some little pizza ovens and things. And the kids would come in and they would do activities. Fantastic. And they'd start to engage. Mm. And one good story that came out of that, and, and it showed me the importance of things like this, was during the, um, the, the MasterChef, we had little pizza ovens. And kids were making pizzas. And I, I rang up the families after the event. And one of the mums said to me, Norm, where did you get those pizza ovens? He said, the, the girls have come out and they haven't stopped talking about it. And dad's about to get out of prison very shortly. He'll be out before Christmas. And we want to buy a pizza oven because the very first meal the girls want to cook for dad oh. is a pizza. Oh, and and so what, what, what I understood was that a lot of these kids have been deprived of good memories. They've yeah. been deprived of the opportunities. Their, their memories of dad or their memories of mum, maybe dad being taken off in a paddy wagon or, or dad being taken out by the police. And so these opportunities to have positive engagement. And, and so Kids Day became quite a key thing that we involved with. Um, we, we ended up building a house on our property, um, got funding through the TAS Community Fund. And so families that lived a long way away, because half of the population of the Tasmanian prison live at least two or three hours away. Yep. And so they travel down for the prison for an hour visit and they travel all the way back. So we built this house on our property and families can come and stay overnight and they pay $30 and they can do double visits. And, yeah. and so we started to engage with families. And mm. so one of the things that Stephanie said, well, what else do you want to do? 
And I said, well, I want to start doing visits where we can connect families via video. The whole concept is genius and I can't imagine why it hasn't been happening for a long time. Well, I mean, some of the prisons are picking up now and technology is becoming more accepted. But it was a... um, We decided, again, I looked what I had and I can work with churches. So we decided to set up, and I remember my first conversation with the director about it, and I later heard he said, I would never have Skype in my prisons. And when I was talking with him, he said, how do you overcome the security problem? I said, you haven't got one. And he said, what do you mean? I said, so, so I outlined how he could do it without it being a security problem. I mean, basically, we set up a, a regional centre, and I used churches and mm-hmm. other organisations as so bases. people would go there to do the video link. Video of it. Yeah. And, and they'd show ID and they'd have photographs taken. They'd put in a report afterwards. They'd sit in a room and they'd connect. But it wasn't just about the video visit. It was actually trying to find places in community where people, families could go and not be stigmatised, mm. where they could go and be accepted and they could actually be known that they've got family in prison and be treated as normal people. And that's one of the challenges that when someone is imprisoned... Oh, the shame. It's not just the family. It's not just the person in prison. Their family goes through a hidden sentence. Mm. And it greatly impacts their lives. And Igniting Change was fantastic. So it, and it's one of the things I love. So I took this idea and, and, uh, and Steph went back and said, oh, we can help. And I said, okay. And so the next thing, Jane took a risk and um, we bought some tablets. And it wasn't really a risk. Well, I mean, she didn't know me from a bar of soap. And... Um, <laughs> But it was great. And so out of that, we've been doing that regularly now for quite a few years, and I believe it's made a real big impact. What, what is the evidence? Like, What sort of things are you noticing, both from the family days where the kids come and spend time with them and then the, the video link up? How does it change the prisoner's experience? Remember those old pictures of, of diving bells you put over your head where the diver goes <laughs> into the water and he's got, yep. this, he's got this long cable that goes down and the, yep. the air is kind of pumped in? It was kind of like the, the, the guy goes into prison and it's almost like you close the door on the air pipe. Mm. And all, all the oxygen and all the good relationships that are there. I mean, some of the bad ones need to be cut off. Mm. But all the good relationships are cut off too. I mean, they, the, the things that are positive impacts on, on the offender and also on the family, they're broken. And, and what the video links enabled us to do is to try to reopen that air link. I mean, it's not an it's not open door. They can walk in and out. But it, it provided the opportunities for, for mums to stay connected with their children. Mm. And, um, you know, so it's often I'd find sons are in prison and the mums or the dads outside are doing it really hard and the family's been hurt in the journey. But when you're able to provide the opportunity for regular connections and the, to rebuild that... It makes them feel human again. Well, it does. And, and they can talk about it. And, and, and one other thing, I mean, it's, it's an, the video technology is amazing because it's led into a whole pile of... I mean, we, we do video um, homework programs with kids. Mm. And so children will go to a school... And, and during because these kids they, they want connection with mum and dad I mean what one family do. we're working with at the moment mum and dad are both in prison both mum and dad are in prison mm. and so a 14 year old girl who's basically separated she's living with a sister who's just over 18 years of age and you know, you've got a partner but she's struggling and so what we're able to do is connect a video session where the daughter is talking with the dad from school in a safe environment and also talking to mum. So we have dad first and then mum afterwards. And over two half-hour sessions, they connect and they talk around sometimes schoolwork and they, they have this connection. One of the stories is um, we started doing a homework program with a dad and his daughter. And um, when, when the girl started doing it, she was really struggling at school. And she was living with her, her grand, one of her grandparents. And the grandparent would drop her off each day and start doing the connection. Then, then, then about, oh, it would have been three, four months after the, she started doing the homework, she wrote a, uh, a letter to me and said, Norm, I just want to tell you how valuable these, these things are. Before she started doing the, the homework program, she was failing everything. And now she is getting really, really good results. I mean, she's virtually passing, she's, she's certainly passing all the subjects. In the past, 
when she um, used to have homework, she'd come and bring it home and she'd hide it. But she says now, when she brings homework and we talk about it, she says, oh, it's okay, but I'll talk to Dad when he rings on the phone. So when Dad would ring on the phone, they have something to talk about. They have the ability to engage. And he would say, how's you going in this program? What's happening with school? How did you do with that assignment? And then 12 months later, she just came back with her, her final, one of her final projects and she got something like 97% in the project. Gee. She got top of the class. A day later, she came in to see me and she brought with her this great big poster and she'd been given, caught out in assembly at school and been, and been voted the most improved student in the school. And here was a girl that 12 months earlier had been failing in most of her subjects and just engaging with her dad and talking about issues had really made such a big difference in her life. It's so heartwarming, isn't it? And and such an easy way of getting a result. Yeah. I mean, has there been any study done on whether the prisoners are less likely to reoffend because of these connections? Yes, it has. I mean, there's quite a few studies, and um, one of them shows purely just by maintaining visits, you can actually reduce reoffending by 38%. Mm. So just by maintaining regular family visits and doing that, you can make such a big difference in lives. Um, there's also one of the things that is a really it's really quite a shocking statistics and it's intergenerational offending. It's the, it's the children that often go on to offend and still one of the biggest predictors of, a tr- of someone who's going to be an offender is the fact that they may have had a parent who's an offender. Mm. And I think working in that, is a, in that space is an area we really want to work. And so out of our um, time we've developed a – we've actually started to get a whole pile of people together and collaborating. So we've got a number of um, government agencies. So we have Child Safety Services, Department of Education, um, I mean a whole range, you know, the prison and community corrections. And we engage around how we can get better outcomes for these children our um, – Committee's called CAPO, Children Affected by Parental Offending. Mm. And one of the things that we've developed, again, coming out of our Churchill Fellowship, is a, a program called Hidden Sentence Training. And this training we, we give to professionals. And, and it's kind of it recognised the fact that when, 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 the fa- when the person goes in prison, the family goes to a hidden sentence. Mm-hmm. And it's yep. to bring an understanding to the professionals. And so what we, we've done probably in the last 18 months, we've done about 400 professionals and about 70 organisations. And we've brought all these teachers and different people. We've done a, a session about what families go through, and then we take them for a tour of the prison to understand so they can appreciate that when a family arrives at the prison, what the mum's going to feel, how they're going and, to... And to walk in their shoes, in a sense. What's next on the agenda? I'm particularly challenged about this whole issue of um, children of offenders mm. and how we can get better outcomes. Mm. I think if we could um, maybe, maybe... I won't say necessarily ramp up, but more strategically engage with other departments mm. and to work around that and get better outcomes. Out of the results of our, um, our Kids' Day, um, we had one of someone do a master's thesis and she was an ex-teacher. Mm. And she wrote a, wrote a really interesting introduction. She said that the reason she did her study on the Kids' Day was years ago when she was a teacher in a former life. She was at a school and at the time at the school there was a, there was a child who came to school and his dad was incarcerated. And what the, the school instructed the teachers to say, well, look, don't say anything about this in a sense, let's not try and bring attention to the Mm. fact. Let's just kind of ignore it and just kind of work our way through it. Mm. At the same time, there was another child who, um, three children, whose dad died. And um, the school actually had a totally different response. What they did was they they got involved in the kids, they cared for them, there were people there at all times. They had a, you know, after the funeral, the the school gathered around them, they supported them. Mm. Yet the other child who in one sense was also suffering the same impact, almost like a father who died, going through this grieving process, Mm. was left alone to try and manage and navigate through the system Mm. all by himself. 
And she said as she observed the differences, the school consisted of caring people. It just didn't know how to care. Mm. It didn't know what to do in a way that would really support these children. That's part of what we've been doing through the, the CAPO and the Hidden Sentence, is trying to show people how you can support, how you can build positive engagement, how you can remove the stigma. And it's not the kid's fault. It's not the kid's fault. And if you want the kid to have any chance of, of getting through life without becoming an offender themselves then these are the things that you have to address. And I think what we don't do enough of is we don't, you know, I'm guilty of it too. I don't listen. We don't listen. Yeah. And, and, and so often it's easy to come in with programs. I, you know, I know one of the things that Igniting Change has done so well, it's, it's, it's brought in the voice mm. of the people that are affected. And I, I think, you know, to hear the children's voice, when we don't do it very often, people will come up with all these great ideas about what should happen to kids. And yet the kids are doing it really tough. Yeah. And, and some of the great things we've done, we've been able to have some of the children write poems. You know, one, one child wrote a poem to a to her mother who's in jail and her mother's in there because of drug offences. Mm. And the child writes this poem about what it means to her because her mum's on drugs. And she, she's able to express it and we're able to take that in and with her and read it out to her mum and let her mum know. Uh, we've done some of the homework where we've actually had daughters and mums do music items together. They've written different verses of a, of, a, of a song that have been put to music and they've done that from a school setting. I mean, some of these kids do it really, really tough. And they are so much wiser than we give them credit for. They are. And as you said, if you ask the children, they'll tell you. Yeah. Just one other thing. Do you think prisons actually work? Uh, I think someone said that in any plan for utopia, um, you have to make provision for both the prison and a cemetery, which is probably true, but no, they don't work. And, and I think, and particularly short-term senators don't work particularly well. People are dragged off, taken away from jobs, taken away from families. Um, prisons are necessary. I mean, there are some people that need to be in prison. I mean, some family separations need to take place. Mm. So I'd be wrong to, and I think it'd be wrong to leave the impression that maybe, you know, we've got to reunite. Some people are not meant to be reunited. Some people are, are, have caused horrific harm. Mm. And, I, and I think people do need, but they need to be worked with as well. And so one of, the, one of the things that came, we actually use some of the Igniting Change diaries for it, is we've started a dad's journal. And so some dads will never actually have contact with their kids again because, and children under 18-year orders. But they're always going to be dad. Yeah. They're always going to be somewhere and they say, what's happened to my child? And maybe we can actually show them how they can engage long-term, how we could make... Humanise them. Humanise them and, to, yeah. and, and give them opportunities to write to their children. So maybe one day when the child comes looking for them, and perhaps they will, mm -hmm. they could hand them a diary and say to them, hey, I have thought about you regularly. I've written about you. I want you to know my story because you're important to me. Mm. And I think we're, we're, we're some of the men and the women who have been separated from their kids, they want to engage and they don't know how. We need to help them. And let's face it, many of these people that are in prison have actually not had a good relationship with their parents. Mm, that's right. I mean, and they're only re, re, you know, reproducing what they've done. Yeah. Norm, it's such a, an amazing and such a thorny issue and you are doing an incredible job. It's been an absolute honour to meet you. One thing I ask everyone is, what's the one thing Igniting Change has taught you? Can I say one thing I've appreciated? I mean, because it, it is the same thing. I, I, I suppose, I, I mean, I've thought about the question because I've heard your other podcasts. I've just appreciated the fact that Igniting Change has been there. I mean, for me, it's like someone's got your back, mm. if that makes sense. I mean, someone else has believed in you and trusted you. And, and so I've been encouraged and inspired by Igniting Change. And I think they've been there and that's been a great help. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening, and remember, see the person, not the label.